Good to see everybody. You can grab a seat right where you are. It's good to see everyone on a Friday night. And especially as we have our Good Friday service tonight and as we prepare and get ready for our Easter, we want to make sure that our hearts and just preparation, not just in the things, little things we have to take care of, but most of all, our hearts are prepared and ready so that we can celebrate all that Jesus has done for us through the cross and also through the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I want to go ahead and just have us turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you are here for the first time, we welcome you. We have a Bible app that you can um, download and click on to, and we have all the notes there. So you can follow along. You can write in some of the notes and look at it together. And also the Bible verses are there as well. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 through 44, we're going to be looking at this whole idea of the scandal of the cross. Why is the cross so important for us as those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ? As you're finding that passage, I wanted to ask a question. How many of you in this room are afraid of heights? Can I go ahead and see... uh, Okay, there's a, a handful of you who are afraid of heights. Now, I'm not just talking about, oh, I'm scared because this is too high. I'm actually talking about deathly scare that you, your heart starts beating faster. Not only that, but you literally get nauseated. You feel like you're about to throw up. And then, as some have described, their knees, their whole legs feel really weak as if they're just going to collapse. Now, if that's you, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, there's still a good handful of you who experience that. Well, I asked my wife if I could share this, and she said, sure, go ahead. But she said, don't be dramatic. But uh, I'm just trying to tell it as it is. And all I can say is then you can relate to my wife, Christina, because she is so deathly afraid of heights. Now, I have to be very clear, it's not just heights, but it's literally going towards the window and looking out. And so this is something that she's always afraid of. And even when we were looking for apartments, she didn't want to live up so high. But me, I wanted to live it as high as we can, right below the penthouse, because that's too much money. So that's kind of me. I need to live like high as I can, look out the window, dream and vision and be close to God. Anyway, but my wife... My wife, on the other hand, she wanted to live just closer to the ground. And this past week, we had an opportunity to actually go to Korea and just spend some time together because my daughter, she had spring break, so we spent some time together as a family. Can we turn down the treble a little bit and a little bit of midterm? Oh, not midterm, mid-range. I don't know why I'm thinking about midterms, but anyway, um, uh, sorry. Um, this past week, so we had an opportunity to go to Korea and for my daughter's spring break. And we visited a Lotte Tower, the World Tower. I don't know how many of you have been there, but it's incredible because it is the fifth largest building, the tallest building in the world. So let me just show you a quick picture. Uh, I did not take that. I just took that off the internet. If I could take a picture like this, it would be great. So this is the Lotte World Tower. It is the fifth largest building, standing building in the whole world. It's at 555 meters high. We're looking at close to about 1,300 feet. 
straight up in the air. It has 123 floors that are occupied by very, very, very important per people. It's VVIP. And also there's office space and there's apartments and different things like that. But it's an incredible tower. If you ever uh, have an opportunity to go and visit Seoul, Korea, it's right in the center of this whole area. And it's, it's, it's just daunting when you see it. And so we had an opportunity to go up there and let me just show you some pictures. As I mentioned before, my wife is like scared, but we're like, we gotta do it. And somehow my daughter convinced my wife, we gotta do this. So uh, we went up there. And so here's a, uh, there's only two pairs of, you know, feet here. Because <laughs> there's somebody who was really scared and could not take this picture, but they have a glass, uh, a glass floor. How many of you have ever seen those kind of glass floors on these tall buildings. And I have to admit, I'm not really afraid of heights, but as soon as I walked on it, like I started getting a little bit scared. I was thinking, whoa, looking straight down. This is, this is close to, this was on the uh, 120th floor, I believe, or 22nd floor. And so we were towards the top. And if you look at the cars, you, you can't tell, but they're like little dots of a dot, of a dot. And right there, you can see that person walking. No, you can't. Anyway, this is 120-some floors up in the air, and my wife would not take a picture with us there. This is where everyone's taking pictures. They're laying down on the ground, but she would not even come close to taking a picture here. And so what we did was we were able to at least take a picture of the sunset because we went right around the sunset so we could see uh, the nice sky and so forth, and it, it was great just to see in, in the river there and as well as, as the sun was setting. And so we finally took a picture with, uh, and look how far away she is from the window, but we were able to take a picture. I think there are no pictures or word descriptions that can fully describe what it feels like to be high up in the sky like that. In fact, I could show you pictures, I could try to describe it for you, but unless you experience it for yourself, you will never be able to fully, experientially go through all the senses when you're that high up in the air. And I think this is the same way with many of us when it comes to the topic of the cross of Jesus Christ. There are many of you in this room who, have grew, up, who grew up in the church you have heard stories about the cross of Jesus. You have seen pictures about the cross of Jesus. In fact, there was, there was a movie, there are several movies made about the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, with these kinds of understanding, whether we read it, whether we have seen it through a movie, until you have a new experience of the cross, for many of us, it's just going to be a part of our religious thing that we do. So the question that I have for us this evening as we think about this is that have you experienced the power of the cross for yourself? Not just reading about it, not just knowing it cognitively, but you've experienced the power of the cross in your life that gives you not only life, but gives you hope and faith and encouragement wherever you are. 
I think all the events leading up to Christ's death on the cross would have been so confusing for all of us in this room. It's just that we have the luxury of looking from facts that happened and we're looking back into it. So if you would put yourself where the disciples were, this was a very confusing moment. And that's why I think for all of us, we have to understand what was happening through Jesus' public ministry and it culminated into the Garden of Gethsemane as well as eventually to Golgotha where he was crucified. One of the things that you have to understand is that Jesus was a very popular figure. He was well known. I mean, can you imagine you're healing people? People are being raised from the dead. Miracles are happening wherever he went. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people gathering, even in towns, as they kept on hearing about this Jesus. People even traveled from other towns to be able to hear who this Jesus was. And then you will realize that things began to change very slowly because of the popularity and the power of Jesus. You will notice that the religious leaders, the political people in power, all of them were afraid of this Jesus towards the end. That's why for the Jewish leaders, Jesus threatened their way of what life and their understanding because he preached this idea of the kingdom of God that is not of this world. For the Roman political leaders, they feared that Jesus would incite rebellion, and that's why they watched him very closely. Therefore, the Jewish leaders got the Roman governor to sanction the execution of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. And this is where we have to remember, in this very moment, Jesus did nothing. He could have. He could have stopped everything, but he didn't. I think this is the reason why the cross is so shocking and scandalous. Why didn't Jesus display his power to save himself? Why didn't Jesus silence the people's mockery by performing a miracle and just humbling every single person who was there? Why didn't Jesus help the people to see that he was truly the Messiah that has been prophesied many years ago? And the more we ponder on this, the more scandalous this cross appears. The one who was mocked as king was really the king of kings. That's the irony of all this. The one who was helplessly dying on the cross was the most powerful person in all of the universe. That's why it's so scandalous. It's very shocking that when you have all the power in the whole universe, not just the world, but in the universe, and then you decide to be hanging on the cross helplessly to be crucified. The one who didn't save himself on the cross was saving others. Shocking. Scandalous. The one who was innocent of any sin was put to death as a criminal by crucifixion. The irony in all this should awaken us in our spirits to something that is far beyond what we hear and what we see in the natural. 
Tonight, I pray that we'll gain this whole new appreciation for Christ's sacrifice uh, on the cross for our sins. I pray that we'll see our own sinfulness in light of Christ's goodness and then give ourselves in full surrender to Christ because he's greater than anything else or anyone else in this world. I like what John R.W. Stott in his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church. Listen to what he says. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but you have to get near enough to it for the sparks to fall on us. What a great thought. Some of us are so far away from the cross and our hearts are not burning within our hearts, within, within us because we are so far away. And I pray that tonight that the sparks and the fire of the cross will fall on our hearts and we will experience true transformation. So let me give us the one thing for us to remember this evening and it's simply this, that we can consider all things as loss when we think of Christ's death on the cross, that we can consider all things as loss, that nothing compares close to Christ as we think about the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. There are two things I'm going to highlight for us in this passage, and I want to look at it from the angle of what I shared earlier, this idea of ironies and this idea of something being scandalous, that how can something like this turn out to be something like that? So the first thing is this, the humble one was humiliated. That's the first thing that I want you to think about as we look into this passage, that the humble one, the, the most humble one, was humiliated. I'm going to read verse 27 through 30. Listen to what the word of God says. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Let's just pause here and look at this. I want you to notice a little bit earlier in verse 24 to 26. Pilate cowardly decides to release Barabbas, a criminal who committed crimes, and then he had Jesus to be the one who will be taken away and flogged. Now, this is very important. Many of you probably have heard of this. You might have seen it. But we have to remember that people were flogged by being tied to a post, so they won't be able to turn away. Another thing that you have to understand is that the whip in which they flogged people, they were made out of leather straps, and right at the end of that leather strap, they would put pieces of metal, sharp metal or glass, and they would tie it into it so that when they whipped that person in the back, it would dig into the skin, and when they took it from a different angle, it will rip off part of the skin. This is a very important fact to understand, and this is indisputable. What I mean by that is historians, even the Roman people, they have written down, this is how we execute people. You first flog them. And the reason why the whipping or the flogging comes first is because by having the person's back bloodied due to all this pieces of metal going into the skin, 
is that it is supposed to be weakening the person before they go through the excruciating pain of death on the cross. So let me show you some pictures so that we can understand. As the pictures are from the movie, The Passion of the Christ, so that we can at least try to imagine it as best as we can. The victim is then tied to a pole or a stump here, and you will notice that the whip will gouge into the person's back. Here's a picture of Jesus after being crucified. There is blood everywhere. There is nothing PG about this. This is as R-rated as you can get. And blood is everywhere. It's all over even the Roman guards. As if this wasn't bad enough, you have to understand as we read the story and then also collaborate with the other Gospels, you will notice that Jesus was brought to the governor's headquarters where the whole battalion gathered together. Now, this will give us a little bit of an understanding because normally a battalion consisted of a unit of 600 soldiers as they were stationed in a particular location to help bring order. So I don't know how many of these 600 soldiers were there, but that is quite a bit of a humiliation in front of all these people. Your back is now being completely whipped and blood is spilling all over. And everything about this Roman torture and eventually the execution was to dehumanize, degrade, and demoralize the criminal or the victim. In this situation, for Jesus. And you will also notice, as we have read, that they were humiliating Jesus by mocking him as being a king. So let's kind of pull back a little bit and look at it at a timeline. Let's see what happened. Jesus was first stripped naked. So we're talking about the humiliation here. And I don't know if you know this or not, but nakedness for a Jewish person was very embarrassing. That's why even when you look at other stories in the Bible where there was nakedness, it was associated with humiliation. Another thing that happened was not only was he stripped naked, which was humiliating for a Jewish person, there was a scarlet robe that was put on Jesus. And as you know, as we have just read, they were mocking Jesus as being the king because only king wore robes of red or scarlet in this situation. And it's a mixture of red and a little bit of that magenta color. The third thing that we notice is a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. As you know, only kings wore crowns on their heads. Another thing that we will notice is a stick was put into his hand, as it says in the passage for today. And only a king had a scepter that he will hold in his hand. The fifth thing that we will notice is that the soldiers knelt before Jesus and mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The sixth thing you will notice is the soldier spat on him. Once again, for the Jewish people, if anyone spat on you, it was a sign of humiliation. You're trying to humiliate them. And seventh and last, you will notice the soldiers took the stick and hit him on the head. 
What I'm trying to help you to understand that transpired as we read in these verses is that everything that they did was to humiliate him, to mock him. And why is this so significant? Because all the mocking, all the humiliation, and all the insults about Jesus being king highlights the irony of the story. The point is simply this. The most humble person was humiliated. And as they mocked him as being the king, was really the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus could have destroyed them with a single command, but he didn't. Jesus, with all his authority, could have called upon a whole legion of angels to come and destroy every single person. But he didn't. He resisted. I think the incredible thing about all this is that Jesus knew that this had to be a fulfillment of prophecy, especially in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. That was a prophecy about the Messiah, and Jesus knew that this is what he had to go through. No wonder the night before him being arrested that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says here, we look at the Luke account, that he prayed so hard the drops of blood came out of him. That's when someone is in complete anguish. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14 in the NIV says this, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred behind human likeness. Like, looking at that picture, there was no way you could recognize who Jesus, because he was marred. Instead of retaliating, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23 in the New Living Translation says this, He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judged fairly. Can I just pause here and just help us to think about humility? When a person is humble, they are able to submit themselves and even their future into the hands of God. This is the reason why many of us have to repent and be honest with ourselves. How many times have you tried to control a situation? How many times have you tried to figure things out or out of fear because you're uncertain of your future and you long for security that you try to take matters into your own hands. Those are all signs of pride, insecure pride at that, but it's pride. To willingly go through something where you might not even know the outcome of what is going to happen, that is a sign of humility. That you trust God 
That no matter what happens in your life, that he is not only watching your back, but he is going to lead you and guide you. I think this is one of the reasons why many of us don't have the appreciation of the cross. And I think this is one of the major reasons why so many of us live controlling our own lives and our own destinies and our own futures. Because there is so much of that pride because you don't trust in God. You trust in yourself. And until we repent, and until we can say, God, forgive me because here I am. I am not God. I am not you. But I'm trying to act like you and be like God in controlling the future. That's why Jesus' submission to God, not only in this situation of not retaliating or fighting back, was not a sign of weakness, listen to me carefully, but it was a sign of strength. That's why if you look at bullies, they're not really strong. Physically they might, but they're not really strong inside. Usually bullies are the most insecure people. Most likely, they have been bullied themselves. It's almost like you could look at their lives and you'll know exactly what's going on. To have all this power, to be able to destroy somebody and hurt somebody. But as they're doing all these things to you, that you do not retaliate or get revenge, that is a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness. As I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about, man, my, my blood was boiling. Every time I look at this gospel account, I wanted to jump in there and beat the, you know, I want to get in there. You know, G- Jesus is, he, he's my boy, you know what I'm saying? So I want to like get in there and if he's going to die, I'm going to die with him. That's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm reading this story and sometimes I get angry, like bothered. Jesus, if you were like, if you, you're God. You don't even have to say a word. You could just go, and they'll fall down. Can you imagine? You could just go, and it'll be a Typhoon 10. They'll be like, you know, their face go. I mean, literally, Jesus, you're God of the universe. So sometimes when I read the story, it gets me feeling a little bit like frustrated. God, if you're that powerful, why could you not destroy all these people who were insulting you, mocking you, flogging you, and crucifying you? And then I started thinking about MMA. Those of you who might not know what that is, MMA stands for Mixed martial arts. And then I was just thinking, can you imagine you're on the MTR and you're a professional Hong Kong MMA fighter? And then these high school kids were going like, ha, 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 and they're all making fun of you? Like, you could just completely destroy them. Well, not with the wink, but I mean, you have to like use some, but you could destroy them. But they're making fun of you. I don't know, maybe it was a t-shirt you were wearing or something. They're like, ha, ha, ha. You know, high school kids do that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, instead of retaliating, as your stop is about to come, you pull out a, a card that says that you are a professional MMA fighter, and then you give it to them and say, God bless you, we'll see you later. 
Like to me, that is strength. A weak person would have probably done something to shut them up. An insecure person might have done something to shut them up. Knowing that they're an MMA fighter. But see, that's the beauty of it. Knowing that you are an MMA fighter, knowing that you could destroy them, you decide not to do anything. That's exactly what Jesus did. When you think about the humble one being humiliated, but he humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father, it looks completely ridiculous when there's pride in our lives. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, how do you know when you have pride? Because a lot of times we associate pride as someone who boasts. I'm awesome. Oh, proud. But I was thinking about this, and I realized, you know, over the years of doing ministry, you know who I came across who are the most prideful people? Who says, wow, you're so good at I don't know, violin, and they want all these awards. They're like the top. They went to the symphonies and stuff. They go, oh, no, I'm not. Do you know people like that in your life? Wow, you're so smart. Goes, oh, no, I'm not. But, but GPA goes to four, but they have 4.2. You know how it works? You know, it's just like they take extra classes. I go, oh, no, I'm not. That's a whole different sermon because just because you got 4.0 doesn't mean you're smart. You just don't know how to memorize. You're not really smart. Okay, anyway, that's a whole different sermon. But listen. Because that person has a 2.0 and they're like, yes, amen. Thank you. You validated me, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I don't know who said it, so anyway. Hey, make sure you study. Don't be like, oh, I have 1.9. And, uh, but I, I, you might not be smart because you have 4.0 because you, you, you might need to study. Okay. So I was thinking about this. How do we know when someone's proud? And I was just, I just sat there and I just started typing away. Oh, you know what I did? I literally listed many of the traits that I encountered with counseling people and interacting with. I'm, I'm a people watcher. And I looked at my own self, having a little bit of self-awareness. I'm like, oh, these are the times when I feel really proud. So I came up with a list of 10. I know. I could have gone on, but I didn't want to have a weird number. So I said, 10 is good. Don't have four because you might die. But let's just, let's just, let's just at least type as many as you can. And I'll say, I'll stop at four, double digits, or excuse me, at 10 and do double digits. So let me give you some of the things that I came up with that help you to understand if there's pride in your life. Number one, when we take credit for things that God has enabled us to accomplish. So it's not really you, but it's God who enabled you to do it. But you take credit and you enjoy taking credit for it. Number two, when we have an overestimation of ourselves and think more highly than we ought. <laughs> of course you're awesome at basketball in your neighborhood when you're playing with these little peewee dudes. But when LeBron James or Kevin Durant or somebody walks into that court, you're like, eh, you're not that great. That's what we call a healthy perspective of ourselves. You might be great with these losers. I don't know what you want to call I mean, these guys. You might be smart in your school, 
But do you know there are so many people smarter than you? So I'm like, no, I'm the smartest. Turn to somebody and say, there's somebody smarter than you. And listen, I know some of you look so hot. Some of you think that you're the hottest thing in the whole world, but you might not. So turn to somebody and say, there's somebody better looking than you. Go ahead. There's somebody smarter, better looking than you, richer than you, trust me, richer than you, has won more awards than you, that has published more papers than you. If all you hang around with people who are not that great, you seem so great. But just open your eyes, there are people who are better. And so I realized when we have an overestimation of ourselves, it's because of that pride that's in your life. It's funny because even at the University of Michigan, or even if you apply to some of these Ivy League schools, like everyone got 3.8 or higher. Everyone took violin and piano. Everyone won all those awards. You're not that great. Number three, when we start judging other people with things that we do or things that we don't do. Sign up pride. Oh, I don't do that. Look at that person. I can't believe they did that. I don't do that. Or I do this, but I can't believe they don't do it. Why are they not sending their soap? It's been about four days. They're starving spiritually. Are they falling away? They're losing spiritual weight. Number four, when we start to compare ourselves with others. It is a sign of insecurity or overconfidence. When you compare yourself with other people, some of us get overconfident. Oh, I'm better than them. Huh. But you're not like it. You're like the silent type, the deathly killer. You're killing everybody. You're like, oh. Here's this person trying to play the guitar, the wrong notes. And I'm like, oh, God. Why don't they ask me to play? That person is so bad. Or she has bigger eyes than me. Why is her legs more skinnier than me? All the guys are like, oh, oh. Well, you, well, why is the arms bigger than me? <laughs> why do they call it six pack? I just have one, you know. <laughs> Comparison either leads you to more insecurity or overconfidence. And that is a sign where you're going to start getting insecure and it's going to make you want to hold on to things more or want to manipulate things more because you're getting insecure. Or you get overconfident and you don't trust in God. You don't give praise to God anymore. Come on, this could be a whole different sermon now. Number five, when we always try to prove ourselves to others. 
When someone says, oh, you can't do it, <laughs> you're like, I'll show you. <laughs> or if people view you a certain way, you're like, I'm going to show them that I'm not like that. That's pride. Number six, when we get angry as we get disrespected by people. I mean, on one level, we all will feel a little bit hurt. But when you start getting angry and you want to get revenge and you want to, like, put them down, you want to speak negatively, this is why you're, there's malice. This is why there's gossip. That's a sign of pride. You're not humble. Instead of submitting yourself into the hand of God, you're trying to take something and a situation and make sure that that person pays a price for disrespecting you. Number seven, when we feel entitled to things because we think we deserve something. As we always say, what we really deserve is death. Because we have sinned against the holy God. We don't deserve anything. When you start feeling a little bit entitled, because you're a leader, or you've been serving, or you've been doing this or that, I've been a faithful member for all these months and all these years, as soon as you start feeling entitled, that is a sign of pride. You're not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to anything. God could, in a moment, take it away. Number eight, when we have a hard time sharing vulnerably our weaknesses with others, another sign of pride, because it's going to make you look bad. But that's where the power of the cross comes when you realize, yes, you are sinful. The surprising fact is that you didn't sin further. That's why whenever I hear from people, oh, I can't believe I then I'm like, stop right there. What I can't really believe is that you didn't kill that person. Because that's what anger leads to. Oh, I can't believe I... No, what I can't believe is you didn't rape that person. Because that's what lust it can lead to. Whenever you say, I cannot believe I then you don't have a proper perspective of yourself. You are so depraved. I am so depraved. All of us in this room are so depraved. We could be the one that's on the news. That's why when you can share vulnerably your weaknesses, it's a sign of humility because only Christ can change you, not yourself. When you hide, when you don't share certain things or use euphemism or share it in such a way that people kind of look, oh, I guess it's not that bad. That's a sign of pride. You're trying to keep your image, your reputation. Number nine, when we don't ask others for help because we are too self-sufficient. Some of you are so stressed out, and then you turn to all these addictive things when you could have just humbled yourself and say, I can't do this by myself. I need help. It's like when these guys are trying to open the door, the women's like, don't hold the door for me. I can open up my own door. And when you're carrying some bags, guys are like, oh, can we help you carry? Don't, don't, don't. I, I can carry my own bag. I have two hands. I can do this by myself. And you're like, whoa. Ladies, can, can I just share something with you? I'm trying to teach our brothers in our church how to be a gentleman. 
you got to work with me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Don't work against me. Don't fight me. I'm trying to help these brothers to grow up and to be men. And when you don't, and so I tell them, hold the door for the women, do all these things, and then you're doing the opposite, you're not helping me, okay? Come on, this is just, you know, we want to see more marriages, you know what I'm saying? Okay? So. Can we all stretch our heads in this direction? Let me close out with number 10. <laughs> when we harbor a spirit of unforgiveness because someone has hurt us, that's a sign of pride. When you cannot forgive, you harbor bitterness, anger, that's a sign of pride. Why? Because you have forgotten how much God has forgiven you. You think you're an angel. You think you're perfect. Look at how many times you've hurt the heart of God. How many times you've sinned and God keeps on forgiving you, keeps on loving you? When you understand that, you'll be more humble and then to forgive and to release people from the prison of your heart because God has loved you and forgiven because he was perfect, you're not. And here's another imperfect person who has hurt you and you're imperfect, but you cannot forgive. There's a story in the Bible I think about that. This is just, I just sat here and just wrote those things out as I was thinking about all the people I've counseled over all the number of hours, all the different people I observe and watch, all the times I look at my own heart and realize how prideful I am. These are things that came out. The list could have been, it could have been longer. I'm sharing this because here is the most humble one who is completely humiliated and is scandalous for us to have any pride in our lives at the foot of the cross. When we think about all these things, when we think about the humiliation of Jesus Christ, all the pride should slowly melt away. We should be repenting of these areas of our lives that we have not surrendered. I love what John R.W. Stott says. He has a great book. If you ever want to read a book about the cross of Jesus Christ, this is the book that you want to read. It is called The Cross of Christ. Listen to what he writes on page 160. He writes this. Therefore, as we stand before the cross, we begin to gain a clear view both of God and of ourselves. Instead of inflicting upon us the judgment we deserve, God in Christ endured it in our place. Hell is the only alternative. This is the scandal, the stumbling block of the cross. For our proud hearts rebel against it. We cannot bear to acknowledge either the seriousness of our sin and guilt or our utter indebtedness to the cross. Surely, we say, there must be something we can do or at least contribute in order to make our, or make amends or make ourselves feel better. If not, we often give the impression that we would rather suffer our own punishment than the humiliation of seeing God through Christ buried in our place. The proud heart is there revealed. We insist on paying for what we have done. 
We cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing someone else to pay for us. The notion that this somebody else should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent. Rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. What a powerful word. That it bothers us that someone else is paying for something. Because somehow we feel indebted. It shows how self-sufficient we are. But that is the message of the cross. That you are completely morally bankrupt. That there is nothing good in you. That everything you try to do, it will completely fail without Christ. And to be able to come to that moment of your life that I need this Jesus. And there is nothing I can add to it. Nothing that I can take away. It has already been done. It is finished on the cross. And to just humble yourself and to receive it by faith. It bothers you. So we rather keep on trying, keep on working harder, keep on doing things. And that's when we become the religion of works. Rather than just humbling yourself and say, I am messed up and I am weak and I need this Jesus in my life. And my heart now is turned to God in gratitude because why in the world would you die for someone like me? In the sinfulness of my heart. That's why we have to look to Christ and how he humbled himself so that we can experience life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 in the New Living Translation. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And then in verse 31, we notice that after Jesus was mocked and humiliated, they put on his clothes and led him to be crucified. How about us this evening? When we see what Christ went through for us, do you still hold on to your pride? What rights do we feel so entitled to when we think about the sufferings of Christ? God, I'm entitled for you to answer my prayer. No, you're not entitled to that. He doesn't have to answer any of your prayers. God, I'm entitled for you to give me a clear direction of my future. You're not entitled to that. God, I'm entitled for you to show me who I'm going to marry. I'm entitled for you to show me my next job. You're not entitled to anything. None of us are. I'm wondering, are you able to surrender and consider all things as loss when we think about the sacrifice of Christ? What he has given, which is his life, what compares? I have lost all things so that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The humble one was humiliated. Let me close with the second point is simply this. Not only the humble one was humiliated, but the selfless one was sacrificed. The selfless one was sacrificed. 
You know, it's amazing when we hear about these stories of people laying down their lives for others. And so often we think about our, we think about these people and just, we call them heroes. But when you talk to some of them, they'll, they'll all say that we're not a hero. I laid my life down, but I'm not a hero. I was just doing something. In that moment, I responded. Uh, there was a shooting in Colorado some years back in a movie theater when Batman first came out that night. And this deranged person decided to come in as he opened up the exit door and he left something there so that it could hold it open. And he decided to come in with just armed with guns. And he, as soon as the movie started playing, he walked in through that exit door and he started shooting people. Like literally, as you're sitting there watching a movie, he comes in from the back or from the front area and he starts shooting people. It was huge news several, some years back. And there are stories that came out and some of the stories that had the similarities were these boyfriends or their husbands or some of these other people, they literally jumped on top of their loved one and they were the ones who ended up getting shot and so that person can live. These are incredible stories. You hear it all the time. It's not like they wake up in the morning, I'm going to be a hero today. It's just in that spur of the moment, they respond. That's why I love it when in the book of Romans, it describes that of what Jesus did in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Listen, I'm going to read it in the message translation so you can understand it and feel it a little bit more. Listen to what it says. Christ arrives right on time to make things happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been, um, haven't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death when we were of no use whatsoever to him. What a powerful thought. You and I, we had no use. All your talents, all your awards, whatever it is that you can offer to God, it's of no use. So I want you to think about this. Just take a moment. When there's a fire in your home, you try to gather things that are worth something to you. When you think about giving your life to something, a greater purpose, is, is something that you feel like is eternal, something that is, has this magnitude of impact. But when we have absolutely no use, that lint in our laundry, whatever it is, machine, or that garbage, no use, but you rescue that. That is the power of love that goes beyond just ourselves. 
That's why when I was reading this in the message translation, I go, wow, I've read this, I've memorized this verse in the different translation, but something about reading it in this translation kind of jumped out at me. Even if we were to try to get ready, we will still not be ready. And he actually died for people like us. It says in other translations, while we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. What do we have to offer to God besides our sin, our pride, that we're so important that God, you have to die for me. He doesn't have to do anything. But yet he still did. That shows you the magnitude of our sinfulness and the magnitude of his love. The beauty of the cross is found in the fact that Christ died for us when we're undeserving of his love and his grace. That's why this crucifixion account continues as we notice two things about Jesus' death. The first is this. Jesus faced the suffering for us. I'm going to read verse 32 to 38. Listen to what it says as we now get into the crucifixion. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put on the charge against him, which read, Jesus, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the left, one on the right, and one on the left. See, by this time, Jesus was so weak to carry the cross that the Roman soldier found this man named Simon, who was from Serene, said, you carry his cross. Now remember, he was beaten and flogged so badly. And as he was walking on this road to Golgotha, he just couldn't carry it anymore. So this man carried it for him. You need to understand that death by crucifixion was one of the most painful and humiliating things a person can go through. It was so painful. Listen, it was so painful that sometimes people will offer wine mixed with all these bitter things or gall, they will call it, just to dull the senses. It was almost like a narcotic to dull the senses to make this crucifixion somewhat easier to bear, which no one should bear. It's incredibly painful but at least having some of it to dull your senses might help. But we see here Jesus refused the drink in order to become in complete control of his senses. I want you to listen to what Craig S. Keener said in his commentary in the New Testament about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Crucifixion was the most shameful and painful form of execution known in antiquity or history. Stripped naked, especially shameful for Palestinian Jews, the condemned would be hanged in the sight of the crowds, regarded as a criminal, unable to restrain the excretion of waste in public, and subjected to excruciating torture. You're pretty much peeing in your pants, or pooing in your pants, or no pants, but like you, you are literally, the, the pain 
But you, you just don't you just don't have things to control. It just says excretion of waste, but it doesn't I like to just keep it real. Sometimes a victim would be tied to the cross with ropes. In other cases, as with Jesus, he would be nailed to the cross. His hands would not be free to swat away insects attracted to his bloody back or other wounds. As bugs and insects, they love open wounds. How many of you have ever gotten those mosquito bites? But I don't they call it nosum or whatever, no see, whatever those things are. You don't see them at all, but you're like, ow. Like just that itch, how crazy it is. We're talking about open wound and insects are going in. The victim's own weight will pull his body into a position that eventually prohibited breathing. So it was pretty much death by suffocation because as he was trying, to, as the person who's getting crucified will slowly start slouching because it's just too hard to hold that weight. And then your lung collapses and that's when you start suffocating. So in order to breathe again, they nail your feet and so then most people, what they would do is they're slouching. They would then push against that on the bottom to gasp for air, and then they will slouch again. So it's pretty much a slow death. A foot stand on the cross allowed him some support, but sooner or later his strength would give out, and usually after several days, he would die from suffocation. So it's not necessarily death from the blood that's dripping, but it's death by suffocation. A slow death. That's why in other gospel accounts, they break the legs so that you can't prop yourself up so you'll just suffocate and die. Jesus went through the pain and suffering so that we can have life. Everything that transpired was a fulfillment of prophecies that you will see over and over again. If you ever have an opportunity, we don't have time now, but if you look at Psalm 22, you will see that there are many prophecies in Psalm 22 that points to what Jesus experienced. It reveals the heart of God and the willingness to allow His Son to suffer for our sins so that we can experience the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6 says this, but, we, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus faced the suffering for us. That should have been us, because we're the criminals in the spiritual sense because we have sinned against God. But he went through that for us. The second thing that you will notice about the cross, as we talked about the selfless one being the one who sacrificed, is that Jesus not only faced the suffering for us, but Jesus faced the shame for us. I want to close with verse 39 through 44. It says this, And those who passed by derived him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. As Jesus was suffering on the cross, he continued to be subjected to verbal abuse by those who passed by. You will also notice not only that group of people, just the pastor people who were passing by, but the second group of people were the religious leaders that were taunting Jesus. Especially about these claims of destroying the temple and raising it again in three days. People could not believe it, but he was referring to his death, his own death. By seeing Jesus helplessly hanging on the cross, he gave more fuel for the religious leaders to denounce Jesus as a false teacher. Look at him, all the things that he said. He's the son of God. If he really is, let God and rescue him. They even ridiculed Jesus by saying that he saved others, but he can't even save himself. What a weak man. Then in verse 44, we see even the criminals. This is the third group who were crucified with Jesus. They threw insults at him. In the Luke account, you'll notice that one of them finally came to his senses and told the other to be quiet. And it says, remember me, Jesus. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. The irony of all this is that Jesus could have done all the things that the crowd was shouting for him to do. He could have saved himself if he wanted to. He could have performed the miracles right there. I was thinking, Jesus, they even said they will believe in you if you can save yourself. Show them. Save all of them. But he didn't. And the reason why was because it was not in the will of the Father to do those things. This is what it means to be selfless. You don't think about yourself. Some of us in this room, our whole life is controlled by you. Every decision you make, everything that you do is all about you. Your future is about you. When was the last time you were selfless? You didn't make it about you. To do things that will bless other people, even though you might not receive any credit. Even though to serve others, even though you feel like you're not being respected or you're not being acknowledged. It was necessary that Jesus had to die on the cross so that we can have life. Therefore, he patiently bore all the shame, all the insults. That is what we call complete selflessness. How about us this evening? When you consider the cross and Christ's selfless act of obedience, does it produce gratitude in your heart? Or is this just one of these stories that you heard so often? When you think about the cross, is there anything in your life that you treasure and you cherish more than Jesus? Because when you look at the cross and you love anything else more than Jesus, 
That is scandalous. Because no one will do that for you, especially where we are right now in our hearts, in our condition. The selfless one was sacrificed. Therefore, the one thing once again is that we can consider all things as laws when we think about Christ's death on the cross. This is the reason why we have to linger and be near the cross tonight to think about the things of our lives that we need to be able to say, God, it's nothing compared to you and knowing you and loving you. Let me give us some quick next steps and then we're going to actually respond. As you can tell, we have communion prepared. We're going to be focusing on the cross. I want us to be able to have some space to reflect, to repent, and then from there rejoice because without repentance, times of refreshing will not come. The first thing that I want you to think about as we respond to this message and especially on this Good Friday is that we have to cherish Christ as our greatest treasure. Do you love him more than your parents? Do you love him more than your children? Do you love him more than your job, your future, your future marriage, your future family? Do you love him more than your grades? Do you love him more than your security? Because if you don't, you're going to be disappointed for the rest of your life. Because everything, will it will not bring fulfillment. That's why some of you are at that point in your life because you have cherished so many other things. And that's why circumstances are changing and just revealing your heart. Some of you cherish these other things and you mask it with Christian language. I hear it all the time. But what it is is your pride. What it is is your greed. What it is is just your desire for other things other than Christ. Well, I'm, it's not the will of God. Or I have peace about this thing. And you, you couch it in these Christian language. That when people hear, they're like, oh, I guess they're praying or I guess they're trusting in God. But it's only when it's taken away. It's only when circumstances change and you realize, oh my God, I don't have control over this. When your heart begins to be exposed. You're loving and cherishing other things more than Christ. There's nothing wrong with having a family. There's nothing wrong with obeying and loving your parents or your children. All those things are good. But if you do it more than Christ, that is the scandal for us who call ourselves Christ followers. And that's why right now in your life, Christ is trying to show you nothing else in this world will satisfy you except for him and him alone. That's why some of you are in the situation you're in. He's exposing your heart not to shame you. He took the shame on the cross. He's exposing your heart so you can repent. And say, God, Here's my heart. I do not love you. I do not cherish you. But I want to. 
because you gave your life for me. Help me by your grace. And until we come to that point, we're going to have all these idols and it's going to continue to produce idols. You struggle with grades when you're in college. Now you don't, you're done with college. You're going to struggle with your career. It just comes in more in different forms. That's why if you struggle with grades right now, it's your God. You got to look ahead into the future. If it's not grades, it's going to be this other stuff and this other stuff. My children, I've seen people who live for their kids and the kids are their gods. But how they, the, please don't misunderstand me. It, you got to think about their future. You got to help them to move on and as they grow older. But they, they control your life. Look at the scandal in the Ivy Leagues where the people were being paid off to get into schools. And their reasoning is you got to go to these Ivy League schools to be able to do anything. Are you crazy? What are you teaching your kids? That you're only worth as much as your degree from an Ivy League school. No wonder they're so insecure. Oh, pastor, I will never do that when I get married and have kids. You write this down, and you, we're not going to even have email. We're going to have, like, virtual reality and say, hey, pastor, you were right. You know why? Because if you do not address these issues right now, there will be so many other things in the future that will become your gods. And they're good things, but you're going to make them into ultimate things. That's why I'm constantly trying to help college students work through these things now when you are young. So that when you graduate and get into the world and start working, there's going to be temptations that you don't even know about that's going to be hard. You think liking that girl in that life group is hard? Just wait until you graduate and start working. A whole sea of people. Some people sleeping around so they can move up. and there's, There are things that you do not know that's going to come at you so hard it's going to knock you over. That's why God is trying to work on your heart now. Some of you are single adults. Do you know why God is putting you through something? He wants you to work on your character. But why? Because when you get married to another sinful person, it's going to be sinful, sinful, double sinful. And then you have kids, it's going to be sinful, sinful times X. <laughs> Multiply exponentially. That's why he's been working on your anger issue right now. Because if you don't, then you're going to express this to your wife and your children. And it might even lead to physical abuse. That's why ladies, watch them play sports. If they start getting angry, cherish Christ as our greatest treasure. Number two, choose Christ above any competing affection. This is my challenge to us when we think about this second thing. In light of the cross, are you willing to choose Christ over all other things? Are you resolved in your heart to choose Christ when things don't make sense and things don't go your way? 
is connected to one. Because when you cherish him as your greatest treasure, then the choices you make will always reflect what you cherish. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What you choose, what you seek after, shows what you cherish. And third, celebrate Christ and his works of grace. I pray that as we think about the sinfulness of our hearts, as we think about the greatness of God and his love for us by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that we can celebrate and rejoice that we are forgiven of our sins and we have new life. Are you willing to give Christ the proper praise because of who he is? I pray that tonight we will, especially as we get ready for Easter, may we respond. At this moment, I'm going to go ahead and have the greeters give out the cards. We want to have a time of response. So I want to give you the instructions of what we're going to be doing so that we're all clear, we're on the same page. I do not want us to leave here tonight and say, okay, yeah, pastor, he, he just said his thing again. And then we walk out and we live our self-centered lives, especially in the light of the selfless one who sacrificed. I pray that in light of tonight, we will not leave here with those prideful things still left unresolved because the humble one humiliated himself or went through humiliation for us. So what we're doing is we're giving you a card. And in this card, you're going to notice it's almost like a prayer where we're saying, Jesus, thank you for forgiving and freeing me from and whatever it is that maybe right now that you're you're lacking faith or maybe you're struggling through with something in your life, when we think about the humble one and the selfless one dying on the cross for our sins, you have to believe that he is and going to and he has set you free. We need to appropriate that work of Christ on the cross into our lives. And so what I'm going to have you do is don't fill it out yet. Just listen to instructions first, and then I'll give you time to do this. What I'm going to have us do after I stop talking and I come down, I'm going to have you look at something, and we're going to have some music, a song played to that. So I want you to reflect during that time. And I know this might sound really weird, but the picture that I want you to look at, I want you to, I want to challenge you to look at it the whole time that the song is playing. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. But just to look at that picture the whole time the song is playing. And then as you're listening, as you're looking, use that time to reflect. And then write something down. After you have written something down, we're going to ask you to come up to the front so you can move towards the middle and you might have to kind of excuse yourself if some people who are still reflecting or writing, I want you to come towards the middle and what you will do is there will be a cross right here and there's a basket. And we don't want you to just toss it into the basket. I want you to come to the foot of the cross and take a moment 
and actually maybe say the prayer that you wrote down. Or just simply just thank him for being the humble one and the selfless one so we can have new life. Just say a simple prayer. It, please, don't, don't, don't be there doing crazy stuff, shaking the cross, don't, none of that. <laughs> you do that on your own time. Just come to the cross and just for a moment, it doesn't have to be long, maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, however long you just want to express your heart to God and just spend a moment and pray and then you could drop it off. Or if you feel like you drop it off first and then you pray, that's fine. But you're going to come to the front, have the car put into the basket, and then I want you to stand there to pray a little bit or you can gather around. I don't know if it's going to be a long line, but some of you could be around and just pray quietly to yourself. The reason why we're going to have you drop this off and we're asking you to put down your life group name on this because on Sunday, we're going to give it back to you according to your life groups. And the power of this is because Good Friday is about the suffering of Christ. Sunday is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have now in him. After you drop it off and spend some time in prayer, the communion table will be right here, and we're going to ask you to go pick up the elements, so the, the bread and the cup. And then you're going to go back to your seats. And what I want you to do as you go back to your seats with the elements of the communion in your hand is to be able to just take this time to thank him again. And this is the reason why we experience and we have what we have for the grace of God. So once again, as a review, we're going to show a picture with music. Stare at it. Some of you, you might get grossed out or whatever. So I understand if you have to like do one eye, but I want you to ponder upon the cross. Listen to the words of the music. Afterwards, spend some time in reflection and then write something down. Please also put your name and your life group on this, your name and your life group. You don't want to receive someone else. Thank you for forgiving me of blink, blink, blink. And you're like, ah, this isn't me. So write it down and please, we're not asking you to turn out your dirty laundry. You could be general. You could put little signs. I don't know. Whatever. You know what it is. And so put your name in your life group somewhere on the back and then come up to the front, drop it off into the basket, spend some time thanking God in prayer, and then walk over to the communion table, pick up the elements, go back to your seats, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in reflection, more reflection, and then we're going to take the communion all together at the end. Can I just state this now, and I'll, I'll share it. I, I, I'm not going to share it when we do the communion. But some of you in this room, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're asking you to refrain or to not to take the communion. Because the communion is only for those people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you believe that Jesus Christ came into this world to die on the cross for your sins. He went through the suffering and the shame for you so that you can have new life. And you believe that, you trust in that. Then you could take the communion. There are some of us in this room 
who are just right at the borders, for whatever reason, something has held you back from taking that step of faith. You're pretty much all strapped up with a parachute. You get on the plane, which is your life group, and you're flying around. And bottom line is, there's going to come a time where you're going to have to jump. Now, I could understand if you jump without a parachute, that's called stupidity. But with everything that you've experienced this past year in life group or the past month or whatever it is for you, how long you have been, your own investigation about the truth claims of Christianity, you have come to a point where you have done everything you can and now the only thing left is step out in faith. you got to trust and believe what he said is true and everything you've witnessed around your people who've given their lives to this Christ, that their life is something different. And that's what you want. I want to challenge you tonight on Good Friday, on April 19, 2019, 4-19-19. Asian people love like these numbers. That's why they got married at 11-11-11. Not on April 4, 2004. It's okay. It's okay. Because what's left for you now is you got to step out and jump. Because God's been preparing you. If you want to do that, I want to encourage you just to say a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge, I admit that I'm sinful. And I cannot save myself. But I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And now I commit my life to you. That's the ABCs. Admit, believe, and commit. And then you could partake in the communion today. Just let some people know, like, I made that decision. Then we're like, no, but it's okay. Some of you were like, no, just have some faith. Maybe they did receive Christ. Come on. I don't know. I, I, I just, mm. amen. Okay. That would be how awesome would that be if some people came to know Christ tonight, amen. As we enter into Easter, I think that'll be great. Praise the Lord. Did everyone get a car? Everyone has a pen. If you don't, you could borrow the person's pen next to you. I love those people in our life groups who have these pouches, and they are just filled with pens. We're all split. We're all Who needs a pen? Wow. If you have a pouch, share. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight and the reminder, Lord, that no matter what it is that we hold on to and what we're trying to live for, they're all a loss compared to knowing Christ our Lord the humble one who was humiliated beyond understanding and the selfless one who sacrificed himself so that we can have life. I pray that tonight we will humble ourselves and we will sacrifice whatever it is 
because it will be scandalous for us to keep our pride and to hold on to things when you've given yourself to us. May we cherish you as our greatest treasure. May we choose you above all other things. And tonight, we want to celebrate that work of the cross. And even looking ahead to Easter, we'll celebrate the resurrection. Tonight, in this moment, in this holy moment, I pray that you'll speak to us and that we will respond because we love you. We thank you for who you are. Amen. As we give you the time to reflect, we're going to prepare the communion afterwards, which means you can write them some things down, and then we'll have a prepare. So we'll try to guide you along, come towards the middle, pick up the communion, or come to the front, drop off the card, spend about 15, 20 seconds praying, come take the elements, go back to your seats, hold on to it until at the end, We'll take it together. Let's look at this picture and listen to the song.